Welcome back to Rockford Reading Daily. We are continuing to read Evicted by Matthew Desmond. We are beginning chapter 7, which is entitled The Sick. And here we go. Scott worked for cash here and there, but his main job was taking care of Teddy. He did the cooking, cleaning, and shopping. In the morning, he helped Teddy out of bed in the shower. Scott felt he had a calling for that sort of thing. It was why he had become a nurse. 38 and bald, with a ruddy complexion, dimples and eyes that matched the blue flames of a gas stove burner, Scott had a gentle, broken spirit. As for Teddy, he was a small man, bone thin, with scabbed over arms displaying shriveled tattoos. He could hardly walk. Scott made him anyway, and Teddy would shuffle slowly around the trailer park, dragging his left leg behind him and looking much older than 52. Pam and Ned had left to go stay in a cheap motel for a few days, but Tobin was still moving forward with Teddy and Scott's eviction. They had fallen behind two months ago when a neck x-ray and brain scan set Teddy back $507. Teddy's health problems began a year earlier when he woke up in the hospital after tumbling down some steps around the 16th Street viaduct. The space beneath the viaduct was one of his favorite drinking spots, the car zooming overhead in the valley floor below. He had gone there with a bottle and some men from the rescue mission. In the hospital, Teddy was told that he was partially paralyzed on his left side, that the doctors had had to fuse his neck back together, and that all the pins and screws were there to hold everything in place. Scott put the eviction notice on their cluttered table next to beers, next to bills, beers, cans, and an old Polaroid camera, and a large ashtray. It was late morning, and the two men sat drinking cans of Milwaukee's Best. Teddy poked the eviction notice. Quote, I suppose he wants to get a little more in his pot. His pot is a lot bigger than my pot. End quote. Teddy had looked straight ahead when he said it, his back perfectly flat against the chair. Sometimes Scott would walk in and find Teddy sitting on the couch, motionless, arms limp at his sides, not watching television or flipping through a magazine, just sitting. The first couple times this happened, Scott leaned in to make sure Teddy wasn't dead. Quote, maybe, end quote, Scott answered. Quote, but what did Tobin do wrong? And, but what did Tobin do wrong? End quote. Quote, he is purely an asshole. If you like him, that's your business. If I was in the shape I used to be, I'd already have gone up there and punched him in the nose. End quote. Quote, that's effective. End quote, Scott says sarcastically. Quote, I'm a hillbilly. You can take the boy out of the country, but you can't take the country out of the boy. End quote. Teddy went on. He could talk when he wanted to. And Scott sat quietly listening. He didn't interrupt the old man when he launched into one of his monologues, drawn out long and syrupy, like his Tennessee accent. Scott stared into the living room. There was nothing on the wood-paneled walls except a large painting left behind by the previous tenants. Jesus and the two thieves hung on crosses all reds and purples. A year ago, the man had moved in with little and had acquired little since. Teddy's prized possessions were his fishing rods and tackle. Scott's was a large plastic container filled with photographs, certifications, and mementos from his old life. When Teddy had finished, Scott looked up from his beer and out the window. Across the way, he saw Ned and Pam's trailer, now abandoned, and Dawn's, where he sometimes bought morphine or if he was in a pinch, Vicodin. Randy's shit pants, 
who thought his dead father was living in his trailer's heating vents, was filthy on his porch, smoking a club cigarette and mumbling to himself. An airplane roared in low. Quote, I, end quote, Scott started, quote, I don't want to live here, end quote. He picked up the eviction notice. Quote, you know what this is? The kick in the ass to get me out, end quote. Scott had grown up on an Iowa dairy farm that later went to pigs. He once got a horse for Christmas. Scott never met his biological father, who, during a date, had forced himself on his mother. To save the family some embarrassment, Scott's mother, Joan, was made to marry the rapist. Jesus. She was 16, but Scott's father soon made a clean break, never to be heard from again. The next husband was a mean cuss, a hitter. Before they divorced, Joan had one child by him, a daughter, Clarissa. Then Scott's mother found Cam, a cowboy, and they had three more children. One of Scott's brothers became a firefighter, another delivered water for Culligan, and his youngest sister was a nurse. Clarissa was an alcoholic who lived in the worst apartment complex of Scott's hometown. Locals called it the Beehive because tenants buzzed in and out of it. Scott never got on with Cowboy Cam. He was too sensitive a kid to please the grizzled ranch hand. Scott took the ACT, got into Winona State University, and left home for college at 17. He soon, outed, he soon outgrew Winona, Minnesota, just as he had outgrown the soybean fields and water towers of rural Iowa. Scott had known he was gay from a young age. Quote, I needed to find others like me, end quote he remembered thinking before moving to Milwaukee. He finished at Milwaukee, Milwaukee Area Technical College and later, at 31, received his nursing license. Scott began his career in a nursing home. He checked vital signs, dispensed medication, monitored blood glucose levels, gave insulin injections, administered IV fusions, fed people through tubes, and cared for... I, I know this word, and I'm... Hold on, let me make sure I pronounce this right. Trek it. All right, hold on. Hold on. I got to get the enunciation of this. Okay. And care for trichotomies and wounds. He learned to make his hands light and quick, how not to puke, how to find the vein. Scott felt needed, and he was. He rented nice apartments in up-and-coming neighborhoods, Bayview, the east side. One year, his best, Scott took home $88,000. He sent money home to his mom. After five years of hoisting limp women and men out of beds and bathtubs, Scott slipped a disc in his back. A doctor prescribed Percocet for the pain. Around that time, two of Scott's best friends died of AIDS. Quote, I fell off. I didn't cope well. End quote. The Percocet helped with that pain too. Scott thought his pain would in time run his course like any other illness. But when his doctor announced retirement, Scott found himself panicking. The doctor had become a treasure to Scott, like a bartender who pours to the rim. Another might not be so forthcoming with the opioids, but there were other options. Scott began buying pills from fellow nurses and stealing them from work. His nursing home patients, too, became regular suppliers, selling Vicodin pills at $3 a pop. Then they became regular suppliers without knowing it. Several months after Scott started taking Percocet, he discovered fentanyl. That was when he fell in love. Fentanyl, pepper, 
Fentanyl penetrated the central nervous system a hundred times more effectively than morphine. It offered Scott pure, calm happiness. It pulled him toward the sublime. Quote, it was the best feeling of pleasure and contentment I have ever felt. End quote, he said. In the nursing home, Scott would take a syringe and siphon fentanyl out of the duragesic patches? Out of the duragesic patches used for patients with chronic pain. He'd then swallow or inject the drug and reapply the empty patch as his patients moan softly in bed. Quote, in your own heart, you convince yourself that you need it more than they do. End quote. Scott remembered. Quote, if I do this, I'll be able to take care of 30 of you. End quote. Like any other romance, Scott's relationship with fentanyl changed from something thrilling and magical into something deeper and more consuming. Soon, he was no longer chasing a high, but running from withdrawal. Quote, the sick, end quote, he called it. When he went without, he would shake and sweat, get diarrhea, and ache all over. Quote, when you stop, it feels like you'd rather be dead, end quote. By this point, Scott needed opioids just to function. When he felt the sick right behind him, he did things he never thought he was capable of doing. One day in August 2007, some of Scott's co-workers found him standing with his eyes closed, rocking back and forth. They sent him home and checked the patches, finding them drained. Scott's supervisor asked him to submit a drug test, which came back positive for fentanyl. The same string of events repeated itself in November, but Scott was still allowed to keep his job because his supervisor, who had a drug history, gave him another chance. Then around Christmas time that year, patients complained that a male nurse had removed their patches. Scott was put in a cab and sent to a clinic for a third drug test. He shut the taxi's door and stood outside in the cold. Behind the clinic's door was a waiting room full of other junkies slumped in plastic chairs and gloved nurses with flat expressions, giving off neither pity nor disgust. Scott knew that Christmas music would be playing. He turned his back on the clinic and walked away. Scared, Scott joined Narcotics Anonymous and tried to stop using, but it didn't take. Quote, my life didn't get any better, end quote, he remembered. Four months later, Scott wore his best shirt to his disciplinary hearing in front of the Wisconsin Board of Nursing. The board ruled, quote, the license of Scott W. Bunker, LPN, to practice as a nurse in the state of Wisconsin is suspended for an indefinite period, end quote. That was the moment Scott decided to settle into a spot on the bottom and become a full-blown junkie. Quote, I really cared about my nursing license, end quote, he remembered. Quote, when they took it away, I was like, fuck it, end quote. And that brings us to a changing of the theme within this chapter. And what immediately stands out to me is just the, the gravity of people dealing with addiction, uh, the, uh, the empathy, the understanding that needs to be constantly and consistently rolled out for people who are dealing with addiction. Uh, I've, in my experience, uh, whether it be through reading, whether it be through people I know I've know, I've met and known in real life or whether it be through documentaries or what any of these things anytime I've spoken to anybody or heard about anybody or read the story of anybody with addiction issues it's very rarely that you don't hear heartbreaking things included in those stories and I think that far too often we as a society just think about how we personally feel about somebody being addicted or how somebody 
who is coping with addicted affects us. And we don't often enough think about how it affects those people and the things that must have had happened in their lives for them to end up in the situations that they were in. Uh, and so that's what stands out to me immediately after reading that is just uh, the amount of empathy and understanding that we have to continue to uh, to roll out to people dealing with addiction. Okay, uh, let's continue reading. After Scott had lost his job in his upscale apartment, he sold most of his possessions and checked himself into the lodge. At the shelter, he met Teddy, who had recently been released from the hospital. He was drawn to Teddy for the obvious reason. Teddy was frail and sick and needed someone to help him climb steps and carry his food tray. Scott was still a nurse in heart and habit, even if he had lost his license. Unlike Scott, homelessness was nothing new to Teddy. He had lived in shelters and under bridges since hitchhiking from Daytona, Tennessee three years earlier. Teddy had grown up in a family with little money and 14 kids. His father was an alcoholic who died young after slamming his truck into the back of an 18-wheeler. Quote, now, that's an experiment, end quote, Teddy liked to say when telling the story. That made an unlikely pair, one a straight Southern man who had lived for years on the street, the other a younger, gay, and a new arrival at the bottom. But they became friends, and then they decided to leave the homeless shelter together as roommates. Teddy's monthly income from SSI was $632, and Scott was only receiving food stamps. They needed a cheap apartment, but they also needed a landlord who wouldn't ask too many questions. College Mobile Home Park had a reputation for letting just about anyone in. When the two men visited the park, Office Susie showed them a small trailer without a stove. It was in a sorry state, but Tobin gave it to them and only charged $420 in lot rent. They moved in that week. After leaving the nursing home, getting drugs had been a hassle. Scott would go to Woody's, the Harbor Room, or other gay bars to hope to run into someone. But in the trailer park, Scott met several neighbors with methadone prescriptions and others who sold drugs. Getting drugs was easy as asking for a cup of sugar. One morning, Scott woke up and felt the sick coming. His pill suppliers had run dry. Scott asked Dawn for morphine, and she was out too. He downed several of Teddy's beers, but they didn't help. In the evening, Scott sat alone in his bedroom, shaking. He put on his baseball cap, hands in pockets, and began doing laps around the trailer park. From a lawn chair outside her patio, heroin Susie watched Scott pass by. She asked her cigarette and went inside to tell Billy, her longtime boyfriend. When Scott walked by again, they called him over. Susie and Billy had a small dog, a terrier mix, and a clean trailer stocked with newer furniture. Susie was middle-aged with long, dirty blonde hair and dark rings underneath her eyes. Her mannerisms were silky, relaxed. She told people she had the gift of healing. Billy was a wiry man in a cut-off shirt who seemed to blink half as much as the average person. He had a gruff voice and faded prison tattoos. Susie and Billy have been together for years and still like to hold hands. Susie asked Scott if he was fiending. Yes, he nodded. She looked at Billy, who retrieved a small leather case. Inside was a package of new needles, alcohol swabs, sterilized water, tiny cotton balls, and black tar heroin. Never shoot it. It was the deal Scott had made with himself when opioids began taking over his life. He had promised he would never inject heroin, 
not after seeing what AIDS had done to his friends. Billy held a spoon over a stove burner to cook the tar with water. Hummingly softly, humming softly, he then soaked up the heroin into a cotton ball and poured it into a syringe. It was dark, coffee-colored. Scott learned later that this minute was strong. Scott took the needle behind his right knee. He closed his eyes, waited, and then came relief, weightlessness. He was a child floating back to the surface, the diving board bouncing. They became friends, Scott, Susie, and Billy. Scott learned that Susie wrote poetry, like telling stories of the days she dealt bricks of marijuana in the 70s and had shot heroin for the last 35 years. Billy shot in his arms and Susie in her legs, which were so scarred and discolored they made even Scott squeamish. It sometimes took Susie hours to find an opening. When she grew frustrated, Billy took the needle and forced it into her next jugular vein. Billy and Scott sometimes scrapped metal or collected cans to raise dope money. Black tar heroin was Black tar heroin was cheap. A balloon holding about a tenth of a gram went for $15 or $20. Other times, all three worked a hustle outside the mall. Billy would steal something of value from a department store, usually jewelry. Susie would then return the item, acting like a dissatisfied customer who had misplaced a receipt. Because Susie had no receipt, the store manager would give her a gift certificate in exchange for the item. Susie would then hand the gift certificate to Scott, who would hawk it in the parking lot, selling it below value. He might sell an $80 gift certificate for $40, taking the $40 straight to Chicago, where Susie's favorite supplier lived. Lenny had approved Susie and Billy's application to live in the trailer park, just as he had approved Scott and Teddy's. Lenny did all of Tobin's screening. He never did credit checks because there was a fee, and he didn't recall previous landlords because he figured most applicants just listed their mothers or friends. Lenny's screening consisted mainly of typing names into CCAP. CCAP stood for excuse me. CCAP stood for Consolidated Core Automation Programs. Like many other states, Wisconsin believed that citizens were entitled to view the affairs of its criminal and civil courts. So, free of charge and provided a website that cataloged all speeding tickets, child support disputes, divorces, evictions, felonies, and other legal business. Eviction records and misdemeanors were displayed for 20 years. Felonies were displayed for at least 50. CCAP also reported dismissed evictions and criminal charges. If someone was arrested but never convicted, CCAP displayed the violation with the disclaimer, quote, these charges were not proven and have no legal effect. Name is presumed innocent, end quote. Employers and landlords could come to their own conclusions. Among CCIP's, quote, frequently asked questions, end quote, was this one. Quote, I don't want my private information on Wisconsin Circuit Court access. How can I get it removed, end quote. An answer was provided. Quote, you probably can't, end quote. Ask Lenny if he ever found incriminating records when reviewing applications, and he would grant at the question and say, quote, most of the time I find stuff, end quote. And if you ask him what kinds of records prevented someone from being approved, he would tell you that he turned down everyone with a drug charge or domestic violence offense. But both Susie and Billy had drug charges, and they weren't the only ones.
Okay, let's have a short reflection. What stands out to me there is very the the description of the excuse me the the description of the use of drugs is very very heavy. Uh, seeing the sort of the downfall that Scott went through, or the I don't know if downfall is the right word, but the the avalanche uh, or the domino effect of events that happened uh, for Scott that got him to the point of living in the trailer park was very interesting. And again, just the stories of, of desperation, the stories of living outside the margins all are very, uh, very enlightening. Lenny got up early one Saturday morning. Office Susie met up with him, and Tobin picked them both up in the Cadillac. They were spending the day in Milwaukee's landlord training program. None of them wanted to go, but they didn't have a choice. Attending the training was part of Tobin's agreement with Alderman Witowski. Funded by the Department of Justice, the landlord training program began in the 1990s with the goal of, quote, keeping illegal and destructive activity out of rental property, end quote. Tobin, Lenny, and Office Susie joined 60 or so other landlords in a large classroom in the Milwaukee Safety Academy on Teutonia Avenue. At 9 a.m. sharp, a tall woman with broad shoulders and a dark suit stood up and announced, quote, we start on time and we end on time, end quote. Karen Long, the program coordinator, began talking at a fast clip, hands clasped behind her back, quote, what's the number one rule in real estate? Location, 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 end quote, Karen said. Quote, what's the number one rule for being a landlord? Screening, screening, screening. You have to do a number of things to find out who's been naughty and who's been nice, end quote. Karen told the room to collect an applicant's date of birth to check his or her criminal record, and social security number to check his or her credit, and to require two pieces of identification. Quote, you need to require sufficient and verifiable income. If they say they are self-employed, well, drug dealers are self-employed, end quote. Karen brought up CCAP. The landlords also received an advertisement for Screening Works, which promised to provide, quote, the most comprehensive background information about your rental applicants, end quote. For $29.95, landlords could obtain a report listing an applicant's eviction and criminal record, credit evaluation, previous addresses, and other information, quote, Screening Works is a service of Rent Grow, end quote. The advertisement read, quote, Rent Grow has 10 plus years experience in multifamily resident screening and serves over half a million rental units a year, end quote. Look, Karen said, quote, if they have a recent court ordered eviction or delinquency, you're not going to get rent from them. If they have an eviction, what makes you think they're going to pay you, end quote. Herself, a landlord, Karen paid attention to how someone looked at her unit. This point was repeated in the thick training manual landlords received at registration. Quote, do they check out each room? Do they mentally visualize where the furniture will go? Which room the children will sleep in? Or how they'll make best use of the kitchen layout? Or do they barely walk in the front door before asking to rent, showing a surprising lack of interest in the details? People who make an honest living care about their home and often show it in the way they look at the unit. Some who rest 
some who rent for illegal operations forget to pretend they have the same interest, end quote. The small act of screening could have big consequences. From thousands of yes slash no decisions emerged a geography of advantage and disadvantage that characterized the modern American city. Good schools and failing ones, safe streets and dangerous ones. Landlords were major players in distributing the spoils. They decided who got to live where, and their screening practices, or lack thereof, revealed why crime and gang activity or an area civic engagement in the spirit of neighborliness could vary drastically from one block to the next. They also helped explain why on the same block in the same low-income neighborhood, one apartment complex but not another became familiar to the police. Screening practices that banned criminality and poverty in the same stroke drew poor families shoulder-to-shoulder with drug dealers, sex offenders, and other lawbreakers in places with lenient requirements. Neighborhoods marred by high poverty and crime were that way not only because poverty could incite crime and crime could invite poverty, but also because the techniques landlord used to, quote, keep illegal and destructive activity out of rental property, end quote, kept poverty out as well. This also meant that violence, drug activity, deep poverty, and other social problems coalesced at a much smaller, more acute level than the neighborhood. They gathered at the same address. And hmm, I think that I want to go back to what we had read, uh, some of the past we read earlier that talked about the CCIP. I think that is it's very interesting when we start, when we begin to talk about discrimination and prejudices and how they look in the 21st century. And sometimes there are, you know, the discrimination is not simply just seeing that a person is black. Uh, discrimination goes into what somebody's past may look like. And if it's more likely, you know, in this country, black people have a higher poverty rate. So if you judge people or have biases on people based on poverty, that inherently means you're going to have a disproportionate uh, negative perspective of black people because they disproportionately deal with poverty. The same thing, if you judge somebody differently or look or discriminate against somebody based off of rest record or conviction record or felony misdemeanor, the same thing's going to happen if it's unemployment. Anything where black people statistically uh, have, a dis, have a disproportionate negative uh, impact on the community, if you judge people by those things, then you are going to naturally have a tend to have a more of a negative perspective of black people because of the fact that they're more likely to have these certain experiences or they're more likely to check these certain boxes. And so even though this may not be something that is a a specific discrimination because you are black, uh, there are other things because we understand that being black is a social construct that has happened in this country and that for generations people have had discrimination done to them specifically because they were black and has put black people in unique situations to deal with some of the most negative parts of this society more often than other people in this country deal with it. And then on top of that, the convoluting criminality and poverty together. And that, again, that happens because of the fact that in this country, there was a, a, a factual proof of that black people were dealing with poverty at a higher rate because it was purposely being done. And there's also empirical evidence that lets you know that poverty breeds crime. And 
So then black people get the stereotype of being criminals. And then these things are, they feed off of each other and they perpetuate each other. And so now when people are screening for these, are, are screening these homes or renting these homes out, since they convolute poverty with criminality, again, they're stuffing the criminals and people who are poor together. And this exasperates both problems. This exasperates both issues. And we're about halfway through this chapter. And so I think what we're going to do is end this episode here so that way we don't, man, it's only, it's not that many pages left. Hold on, let me see how long this episode is and then we'll figure it out. Okay, this is just going to be a little bit longer of an episode. Let's keep reading. For people familiar with hunger and scarcity, addiction and prison, that often meant being isolated from job networks and exposed to vice and violence. But it also meant people could air problems, swap food, clothes, and information and finish one another's sentences about lousy jobs or social workers or prisons. They put gravy on everything. It meant that they should be, I, I, didn't do, I should have did the quote that, quote, they put gravy, end quote, quote, on everything, end quote. That meant that should they be in the early stages of opioid, try that one more time. It meant that should they be in the early stages of opiate withdrawal, they could take a walk around their trailer park to calm the shakes and run into a fellow junkie who could give them what they needed. Some landlords neglected to screen tenants for the same reason payday lenders offered unsecured, high-interest loans to families with unpaid debt or lousy credit. For the same reason that the subprime industry gave mortgages to people who could not afford them. For the same reason Rent-A-Center allowed you to take home a new high-sense air conditioner or Klausner, quote, Lazarus, end quote, reclining sofa without running a credit check. There was a business model at the bottom of every market. Quote, questions, end quote. Karen's eyes paint the room. Quote, should I do a short-term or long-term lease? End quote. Quote, first do a lease. Please, put it in writing. Between 60 and 70% of rental agreements in this state are verbal. End quote. A man in camouflage hat raised his hand with a question about evictions. Quote, do you have to leave them there for three months or some foolish thing? End quote. Quote, no. Nothing protects you from not paying the rent. End quote. Quote, is there a maximum charge for a late fee? End quote. The room laughed nervously and Karen frowned at the question. Quote, can you go in any of the common areas, the hallways, the open basement without any notice? End quote. Karen paused for effect. She smiled at the woman who had asked the question. She was a black woman, probably in her 50s, who had sat in the front row and taken more notes throughout the day. Quote, what is the answer? End quote. Karen asked the room. Quote, yes. End quote. Came the reply from several fellow landlords. Karen nodded and looked back at the woman. Quote, okay, say this with me. This is my property. End quote. Quote, this is my property, end quote, the woman responded. Quote, this is my property, end quote. Karen said it louder and raised her hands, inviting the room to echo. Quote, this is my property, end quote, the landlords answered. Quote, this is my property, end quote, Karen boomed, her finger pointing to the land below. The voices in the room went up in unison, a proud and powerful chorus. Quote, this is my property, my property. End quote. Okay, and that brings us to a changing of the theme within this chapter. 
We only got like a, like two and a half pages left, but I don't want these episodes to run too long. So I think upon reflection, what really stands out is this concept of property, you know, and this concept is so convoluted specifically in this country because just a couple of hundred of years ago, these this property that these people are claiming is theirs belong to a completely different nation of people. And I guess a couple hundred is a maybe an underestimation, but you know, 500, 400, depending on where you're at, 300 years ago, this land belonged to a completely different nation of people. And it was not gotten through, through uh, respectable methods. It was gotten through or taken through genocide, through, uh, slavery through uh, a host of violence. You know, it was done through violent means. And so it's very interesting to hear, and that's how capitalism works. You know, capitalism works where it doesn't matter how you got what you got as long as you got it. Uh, and so we're going to end this episode here. We'll finish this cha- this chapter on the next episode, and we'll begin uh, a new chapter as well. Okay, so please share this whatever platform you're listening to it on, and remember... We put these episodes out on a daily basis to provide people the opportunity to begin or further their journey in the struggle to end police terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice. I'll let you tomorrow.